Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back. I know it has been a few weeks since a new episode has been released. So first and foremost, for my returning listeners, thank you all for your patience. Obviously, thank you for your continued support. The comments I've been getting, the emails, all of the stories that I'm hearing, the engagement that I'm getting from people is just really, really humbling and just really making me hopeful that this whole project of mine, of ours, this this project of ours as a society to brick by brick dismantle the edifice that is white supremacy, that this project is not hopeless. This project is going to take fucking forever, unfortunately, I feel. But it's not hopeless and it is doable. And the comments I hear from you all, whether it's on social media, whether, like I said, it's on email, whether it's text, whether it's leaving reviews on iTunes, whatever it is, it's clear that people are listening and thinking. And honestly, that's, I couldn't ask for anything more. Just people keeping their ears open and their minds opening and wrestling with these topics that we've been talking about. I promise you, I will continue to produce episodes and wrestle with these topics. And that's all I really ask in return is that you do the same. Look in the mirror, talk to each other, and let's keep this conversation going. So, today is a miniature, miniature milestone. It's episode 10. And I think early on, maybe episode one, even I mentioned something about, you know, multiple, multiple episodes, maybe 39, 99, some kind of hubristic number. But I have to tell you that that once this this endeavor took off, it, it takes more out of me, and this is gonna sound so so whack in so many ways, but it takes more out of me to do these episodes than I had anticipated. And so I'm not trying to hear I'm not on here trying to throw a pity party for myself. And I certainly don't want to come across as someone who is who as a white person who is exhausted after nine whole episodes, I'm like, I'm worn out by racism because nothing I think could be more insulting to my black brothers and sisters who have had to face racism their entire life and then the entire lives of their ancestors. So nothing could be worse than me to get on here and be like, Man, talking about racism for nine episodes of my podcast has really beat me down. So I'm not really trying to say that, but wink, wink, I am kind of trying to say it's a lot. It's a lot of heavy mental, emotional lifting. And I think especially episode seven, eight, nine, because they delved so deeply into my family and because they delved so deeply into my grandfather as a person and more importantly as a historian, and because my grandfather, like many people's grandparents, is such an icon in my family. He's a legend. He's a myth. Even when he was alive, he was a bit of a legend in my family. But since he has passed, and he's been passed now for decades, but since he has passed, it's almost like he's become this larger in life character. So talking about him and talking about him in a critical way and talking about the book that he created, the textbook he created Virginia, for Virginia in such a critical way does take a lot. 
and then to have to deal with the repercussions and the consequences, which is something I anticipated and something that I welcome, but it's still emotionally, there's just a lot of heavy lifting there. So I will try to keep this content coming on a weekly basis, y'all. I, I really will. But just bear with me and just know that if, if a new episode doesn't come out, when you think one's coming, I promise you there's there's one coming hopefully sooner rather than later because we still got a lot of topics to talk about. Chronologically, in the journey that is the life of Jimmy Lincoln and how it has intersected with whiteness, we're only up to about my middle school years. So we've got plenty of stories to tell, plenty of things to talk about. Today's agenda is real simple. I'm going to deal with some of the responses I got to my last three episodes, especially responses that came from my family members. And then we're going to jump into talking about some popular culture and discussing one of my favorite television shows ever. And a television show that that is most certainly problematic when it comes to perpetuating white supremacy and racism and notions of whiteness, but a, a television show that's also, the more I've been thinking about it lately, a little more complicated and complex than maybe it appears to be on the surface. And so we're going to delve into that in the latter part of today's episode. But I want to first talk about reactions that I've been getting from my family. And I guess the first thing I need to do is thank my family for having thoughtful reactions. Because as much as I'm hanging out some dirty laundry or opening up cupboard doors or whatever euphemism you want to use for talking about things in public that people don't often like to talk about, my family has been really understanding. They haven't always been happy. <laughs> the Lord knows they haven't always been happy. But they have been understanding of who I am and what I'm trying to do with this project and what I'm trying to do with this podcast. And so the first reaction I want to talk about and by reaction, I mean reaction to the last three episodes, particularly the episodes that focused on my grandfather and the Virginia history textbook, the fourth grade Virginia history textbook that he authored that was used across the state in the 50s, 60s and 70s and in some cases into the 80s. The textbook that that I hope I exhaustively demonstrated was rife with with racism. There's no other way to say it. Filled with racism. And a textbook that most certainly, most clearly, most definitively perpetuated white supremacy and the notions of whiteness as being superior to all other experiences. And one of the first reactions I got, not surprisingly, because I talked to her frequently and because I was talking about her father, was from my mother. And if my grandfather is a legend, if my grandfather is a god in the eyes of my family, then his number one parishioner would probably be my mother. I don't think I've ever, ever 
heard my mother say anything even neutral about my grandfather, let alone anything negative. And so you can imagine, because, thank you, by the way, Mom, my mother is a faithful listener. You can imagine she wasn't thrilled about episode seven, eight, nine. And something she told me after hearing episode eight, before hearing episode nine, after hearing episode eight, something she told me really, really just stuck with me. And this quote I'm about to share, I think, is just so meaningful beyond just me and my mother and my grandfather and my family. And my mom said, I quote, Please don't take away everything. Please don't take away everything. And obviously that wasn't the only thing she said to me. But that was the quote that stood out to me as we talked about my recent podcast and as we talked about her father, my grandfather. Please don't take away everything. And my initial reaction was like, shit, mom, I'm not taking away anything. And I talked to her, you know, I didn't say shit, mom. I might have. I don't think I did, but I might have. And I talked to her about how my feelings and my memories, which are almost exclusively positive about my grandfather, haven't changed. Despite what I've uncovered about his book. But it was clear that there was there was some very real, very almost visceral anxiety on her part. That by delving into this systemic racism that my grandfather's book, and therefore my grandfather himself, helped perpetuate, helped create, that I was going to destroy an image of him that she had and perhaps others had. Don't take away everything. And really, what that, that quote made me realize beyond just my mother and how invested she was and how invested so many family members of mine are in this notion that my grandfather is pure and good, unadulteratedly good. Beyond all those notions, it made me think collectively about how white Americans view history, specifically American history. And it's, I have to admit, something I hadn't necessarily thought about before, which, although I pretend to be really smart, is going to happen a lot in this show. Like, I think I'm smart, and then someone else brings up something, and I'm like, damn, how did I miss it? But what I mean is this collective notion of we, and the we in this case is white America, this collective notion that we are a good people, we are a just, and we are a moral people. And this topic came up a little bit when we were talking about my grandfather's book. And on the surface, that collective notion sounds sounds laudable. Wanting to think of yourselves and your ancestors especially as good. Because if your ancestors, whether we're talking about my mother or whether we're talking about collective white American, if your ancestors are good and you're descended from them, then not only do you have the DNA of goodness in you, but you have that standard of goodness set for you. 
the problem, the problem with these notions of collective goodness or even personal goodness is that it obviously, at least it's obvious to me now, blinds you to inequities and injustices. And if you're blind to inequities and injustices, whether they're in the past or the present, then it's hard to rectify them. It's hard to be accountable for them. Not just hard, it's impossible, right? Because if you're blind to inequities and injustices, then how do you fix them? Because you don't see them. And so my mother, who, who to her credit, frequently engages with me in some really, really uncomfortable conversations about social justice and about race. And my mother, to her credit, really, really supports me and my brothers in trying to figure out who we are and figure out how to make this world maybe a slightly better, more just, more humane place to live. My mother is always supportive of, of those efforts that on behalf of me or my brothers. So it's not as if my mother is, is in any way pro-racist or even like, you know, diet racist, like a re Republican supporter or something like that. But it was still really clear when she said that quote, don't take away everything. It was really clear to me how important it was to her identity to think that her father, my grandfather, was, was good and pure. And I think it helped me better understand white America's reluctance to delve into the past, because if we're going to address systemic racism in the present, then we have to we have to look at the past, because I think some of the solutions for our current inequities, whether it's in housing, the economy, education, healthcare, even politics, some of our solutions, if they're going to work. Have to look at the roots of some of these problems in order to really fully work. But white America's reluctance to delve into the past. is not intended to be a pro-racist reluctance, even though I think it ends up having that effect, unfortunately, for white America. But fuck it, white America, get over yourselves. But I think it's intended to, to protect our identity. Our identity is good and moral people. And maybe to some of my listeners, they're like, well, no shit, duh. But I think it's worth reinforcing because it's so easy for me. And I talk about this a lot because it's important to me it's so easy for me, if I'm not careful to fall into this self-righteous trap of, oh, I'm so woke and I'm so anti-racist, how the hell are you not? You must be ignorant, or worse, you must just be racist. And while that may be true in far too many cases, I do think it's important to understand the psychology of white America. in order to to address that psychology and, and maybe help people readjust how they're thinking. Because this paradigm, this construct of 
thinking of ourselves as good people, whether I'm talking about my mother as an individual or whether I'm talking about white America collectively, doesn't have to be tied to the past. We've chosen to tie it to the past. And we've, you know, history in many ways, especially history as it's disseminated in public education, is designed to make citizens proud of their past. But as we get older and as we we get more educated and as we get more willing, hopefully, to listen and rethink things, we can make a choice to say, you know what, I'm a good person regardless of what happened in my past. And because I'm a good person, I'm going to address the legacies that still have carried over from my past. Or even better, stop saying we're good people. Because that right there often precludes us from from change. Let's just say I'm a person trying to be good. It's like that woke notion that I've talked about before, right? Let's not walk around saying we're woke. Let's walk around saying we're waking up. Because waking up implies this constant evolution and change. Now, the second reaction I got from another family member, another liberal family member, old liberal family member, was in some ways a more predictable reaction. And it was a really thoughtful email that I received from this family member. And in this email, my family member acknowledged how racist my grandfather's textbook was. And I don't necessarily feel there's any purpose or point in revealing who this family member is, but I will say this family member really close to my grandfather as well. And this family member acknowledged how racist his book was and then devoted the entirety of the rest of the email, five or six other paragraphs, to either explaining away that racism, justifying why that racism might have existed in my grandfather's book, or defending my grandfather's evolution as a person later in life. So one sentence about, yeah, the book's racist. And then I would say, I don't know, 40 sentences that are either making excuses, explaining, or focusing on evolution. And my son, who is much, much younger than me and much wiser than me, pointed out that, Dad, that's a pretty normal reaction. When, when someone feels like a loved one, a really closely loved one is attacked. And so this family member, I'm not angry at this email. In fact, I'm really, really thankful that this family member took the time to write such a detailed and thoughtful email. A factually accurate email in many ways, but an email which, which to me is still problematic and still speaks, just like my mother's don't take away everything comment, an email which still speaks to this collective ethos that white America has got to do away with if we're truly going to be committed to dismantling systemic racism. So in this email, my family member talked about how maybe it was the publishers who were responsible for some of the language in my grandfather's book. Okay. That may or may not be true. 
but perhaps the publishers are the ones who asked my grandfather to use the word servant rather than slave. This family member then went on to point out that maybe because my grandfather was simply a co-author, although I would point out the lead co-author, that once again, maybe he's not fully responsible for the material in this book. What's it? Okay. You know, I don't think those are the strongest excuses or even, you know, they, they tend to take away any agency from my grandfather. Like if he very well could have told the publisher, no, as a historian, we need to use the word slavery instead of servant. Or he very well could have chosen not to participate in, in writing this book if his two other co-authors were dedicated to to perpetuating white supremacy and, and a lost cause myth. So I don't find those excuses or explanations particularly compelling. And then this family member devoted the majority of the email to talking about how much my grandfather had evolved and that while she wished he had done more, that she thinks his evolution had had gotten to the point where where some of his behavior later in life was almost redemptive. And once again, and you know, I guess I talk about this a little bit in episode nine. There were definitely some things that my grandfather did later in life that I'm very proud of, and some things he did earlier in life that I'm proud of. But once again, I'm really, really I don't know what the word is, but I think dismayed at the overall tone of this email. And for a couple of reasons. I think primarily the it's it's an approach to racism that unintentionally still marginalizes black people and their experiences. And we see this in movies all the time. Movies that so-called are progressive and deal with race that end up actually focusing on this redemptive arc for the white characters and that race is race and, and the people who experience it. Black people are actually sidebars to the true story of white redemption. And that's what that's what this email felt like. So for one, I'm not even sure if if I believe that anything my grandfather did later in life somehow was redemptive. I'm not sure if that concept even fits. And I'm not sure that if him hiring an African-American historian to work at JMU in the 80s can erase the damage done by that book. I'm not sure if him befriending African-Americans in his civic life as a member of Harrisonburg City City Council can destroy all of the bricks that his book added to this edifice of white supremacy. I'm not sure, and I honestly don't care, because I don't know if that's the approach that we as white people need to be taking. In other words, we shouldn't be gazing at our navel so much. Focusing on our story arcs is part of the fucking problem. Focusing on our redemption is part of the problem. And I realize the irony in me saying that statement when this entire podcast is filtered through my own experiences. So I'm fully cognizant of that. But the only reason I'm making this podcast focused on my experiences is to try to help myself and others 
make sense of those experiences so we can we can grow from them. And I don't think focusing either individually or collectively as white people on how far we as white people have come and how we deserve forgiveness is going to lead us anywhere as a society. I mean, shit, yeah, it's going to feel good for us as white people. But I think it, it threatens to, to obscure all the, the problems that still exist, especially those that are systemic in nature, because focusing on personal redemption and personal evolution doesn't leave much room in the conversation for discussions about systemic issues. And focusing on personal evolution and personal redemption also means we're still running our fucking mouths. Once again, parenthetically, I recognize the irony. However, white people running their mouths is part of the problem. And so those of y'all who are listening, and I know I need to hold myself accountable for this because it's an understandable thing to do. What, what this family member did in the email is totally understandable. But I think those of us listening, those white people listening to this podcast, and I certainly hope to hold myself to this standard too, the last thing that we need to do when we're addressing systemic racism in this country is to, is to shine a spotlight on ourselves. But it seems like we do that a lot. Either a spotlight so that we can excuse or explain away past racism. The, the famous, you know, everyone was like that back then. Which, first of all, no, that's not true. Never in any time in history, in any era, in any part of the world was everyone like anything. I promise you that. Secondly, I promise you also that whenever you're talking about race in America and you talk, tell me that everyone was like that, I can always point to a gigantic group of humans who weren't like that. You know who that group is? That's black people. Like, I guarantee you that there is always a significant number of people, perhaps not the majority, perhaps not even a very very large number, but a significant number of people who think differently than maybe what the prevailing social currents are. But we love as white people to use that excuse. Well, everyone was like that back then or any excuse to justify past racism. And then if we can't really excuse away past racism, we'd love to focus on evolution and redemption. And like I said, you see this in Hollywood movies all the time. Whether it's, you know, Driving Miss Daisy. What's the movie recently with Marashal Ali? I think it's called The Green Book. Where these stories of race and racism don't really want to look at black experiences clear-eyed and don't really want to hear black voices with open ears. But would rather just use black experiences and black voices and and racism as a springboard to these redemptive stories about white people. And I think as long as we do that, we're just reinforcing notions of white supremacy. We're just centralizing white experience. And so I want my listeners to just be mindful of that. Whether you're in a conference, in a training, in a discussion with a colleague, 
talking to friends, hearing an athlete on TV talk about their experiences, reading about someone's experiences, being corrected for something you say or do. Resist that urge to excuse, explain, or focus on evolution. Resist those three E's. And I'm not saying, don't get me wrong, I'm not saying I don't want you to evolve. But let's not go around patting ourselves on the back, white America. Because we have slightly realized, we've taken baby steps towards this notion that being a racist asshole is not a good thing. Let's just avoid patting ourselves on the back at all. And let's just shut up and listen. Or shut up and listen and then get to work. And let our black brothers and our black sisters and our brown brothers and brown sisters and our indigenous brothers and sisters and our Asian American brothers and sisters, let's let them guide us. Let's let them set the rules of engagement for once. Because until we do do that, we're not really fully addressing the problem. So thank you all for listening to this this prologue to today's episode that, that went a little longer than anticipated. But as happens, you know, I'm not reading off a script here. But that was just important that that I got that off of my chest because the reactions I got to my my recent episodes were were very, like I said, very thoughtful. And I'm not I'm not here to say they were bad or necessarily even wrong. I guess in a way I'm saying they're wrong, right? But I'm I'm trying to say they're not. They're not where we need to be yet as a people. Today's episode. So that, enough prologue. Let's get into the book itself. And today, I want to talk about one of my absolute, total, completely unvarnished, favorite television shows of all time. And as soon as you hear the name, you're going to be like, well, well shit, of course he's talking about this in a, in a podcast titled Journeys into Whiteness. But I want to talk about the Dukes of Hazard and how that show plays a role in perpetuating notions of whiteness and white supremacy, but in a way that's fairly complicated at times. And that the notions of white supremacy that they do perpetuate aren't maybe as obvious as they may appear on the surface. So I'm sure if you are of a certain age, I don't have to tell you much about this show. If you're a younger listener, I would encourage you to Google this show, but it's a pretty basic premise. You've got a family, last name Duke, an extended family living in Hazard County, Georgia. I'm fairly certain that's a fictional county. Rural County in Georgia. Farm family, or at least farm roots. The two main characters are two cousins in this family, Bo and Luke Duke, two strapping young gentlemen who love to get into hijinks and drive fast cars. We'll get to the car later. I know all y'all are waiting for my talk about the orange car. We'll get to it. And who frequently find themselves in trouble with the law. The theme song even says it. 
Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law since the day they were born. I bet some of y'all didn't know my accent could get even more country. I believe Waylon Jennings is responsible for the theme song. Catchy as hell. Just a good old boy. Never meaning no harm. Beats all you ever saw. Been in trouble with the law since the day you were born. There's more lines to it. I'm sure you can look that up. But that's the premise for the series. Bo and Luke Duke, in their own kind of ne'er-do-well way, fighting for justice in the American way in a small southern town, thwarting the local mayor, the local political leader, Jefferson Davis, a.k.a. Boss Hall, and his lackeys in the sheriff's department, specifically Roscoe P. Coltrane and his deputies, Enos and Cletus. We know the show. I'm not going to spend too much time going over the, the book report version of the show. But there's a lot about this show that I've just been thinking about lately, and I don't know why. Because this show really came back into America's public consciousness in 2015 after Dylan Roof so so heinously, Dylan Roof's that teenager in South Carolina who so heinously slaughtered nine black parishioners at a South Carolina church. And his love of Confederate symbols, specifically the Confederate flag, kind of came to light. And it led to a lot of cultural products that were associated with this flag being quote-unquote canceled. We're going to spend a whole episode one day on cancel culture because I just got to say I'm not even sure it's real. But whatever. For now, for lack of a better phrase. And the Dukes of Hazard, which was in syndication, I believe on the... TV land station and maybe in other places was pulled by a lot of streaming services and cable providers and whatnot. But because this show played such a big role in my television journey as a child, I want to talk about my thoughts. And this show was on from, I believe, 79 to 85. So right in the sweet spot of when I'm a little kid. And I adored this show. Loved it. Loved it. The way Bo and Luke would slide across the hood of the car, their car, the General Lee, which I'm sure a lot of my listeners knew, used to be a race car, so you couldn't even open the door like with the handle. You had to jump in through the windows. So, so fucking badass. And they would jump it all over all kinds of stuff. Who knew there were so many jumps in Hazard County, Georgia, but apparently there were. Because I think in real life, it's incredibly hard to actually jump a car, even with a ramp. I've never tried, but it doesn't look like it would work. And they would often, these are my favorite parts, and it would happen at least once an episode. They would be speeding down some dirt road, being chased by the law, being chased by the sheriff, Roscoe. This show, by the way, has a lot of its roots in, in Appalachia and in the bootleggers who during Prohibition used to get chased by, by the revenue men and by the local sheriffs who, who maybe were working with the federal government. Anyway, my favorite part of the show would be when Bo and Luke were speeding down some dirt road, fishtailing away from the sheriffs, and they would hit some jump, either go over a, crate, a creek or a lake bed or a bale of hay or another car or who knows what, and the, the screen would pause, and you knew they were going to commercial, and then Waylon Jennings, who acted as kind of a de facto narrator, would come on, and you wouldn't even see his face usually, at least I don't think you would, 
And he would say something like, boy, Duke boys got themselves into a heap of trouble this time. And then he'd go to commercial. And every time it came back from commercial, they would land their, their race car safely and they'd get away. And so despite the fact that you knew that was going to happen each time, it was easily my favorite part. Man, I love that show. Man, I love that show. But as you can imagine, a show set in rural Georgia where one of the chief props is a race car nicknamed the General Lee that has a gigantic Confederate flag painted across its entire hood. Not hood, I'm sorry, the entire roof of the car. You can imagine that this show problematic to say the least when it comes to white supremacy. So one of the first things that jumps out about this show, and this you see today in 2020, when you hear people of a certain political persuasion, people on the right, people who identify with the conservative movement, people who are Republican, you hear them kind of contorting themselves into these these intellectual pretzels. And this show kind of highlights why they're doing it. So what I mean by that is this One of the themes of this show is the traditional, typical, small-c conservative belief that that government can't be trusted. Because the government entities in the Dukes of Hazzard, by and large, are corrupt and idiotic. Boss Hogg is both. Nefarious as well. The Sheriff's Department, not quite as nefarious, but corrupt as hell. And dumb as hell. And the Duke boys are constantly breaking laws. Now they're breaking them for good reason, and we'll get to their behavior in a little bit. But the show really reinforces this idea that you can't trust government. And you hear that a lot from people on the right. And from people associated with the Republican Party. And you hear that with people associated with conservatism to date. The only time, though, they typically... Foreign policy might be another exception, but the only time in domestic issues that you hear those people do a 180 is when we're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement or police brutality or anything having to do with black communities suffering injustices at the hands of government institutions, particularly law enforcement institutions. Then you hear conservatives, and you can almost see it on their face, their head starts to explode because then they, at their core, don't want to support government, but all they can do is shout about how if black people would just respect police, that Elijah McClain would still be alive. If black people would just follow the law, then Jacob Blake would still be alive. And George Floyd would still be alive. You hear them championing championing law enforcement and big government. If those protesters in Portland would just settle down, then the Homeland Security folks, those shady fuckers throwing people in vans, wouldn't have to do what they have to do. And so just thinking back on Dukes of Hazard, I was so struck by that notion of how the roots of conservatism in many ways are distrust of big government, but how in many ways that principle is utter bullshit for many people. Because they're fine with big government as long as big government's not messing with them. But they have no problem with big government killing black people and murdering black people in the streets of America. 
None whatsoever. And in some ways, the Dukes of Hazard is oddly anti-Confederate, despite the fact that, and we'll get to the car, despite the fact that the car is nicknamed the General Lee. Think about it. And I didn't know this until I did some research, but Boss Hogg's Christian name is Jefferson Davis Hogg, and Boss Hogg is a fucking clown in this show, a nefarious clown, but he's a mix with Colonel Sanders and Jabba the Hutt. He is not a hero. He's not someone who is celebrated. He is consistently immoral and getting punished for his immorality by the Duke boys helping someone out of a jam or doing something to help the county or help the local folks. So in some ways, I thought that was interesting that the show chose to name him after the leader of the Confederacy and then chose to make him this this greedy yet bumbling fool. And there's even a comment in the pilot where Uncle Jesse, who is very much the voice of the elderly voice of wisdom in the show, makes a comment about the family, the Duke family farm being in the family for 200 odd years and how the British couldn't take it or the Confederacy couldn't take it. So in some ways, there are little tiny nuggets of anti-Confederacy in this show. And it wasn't until I started thinking deeply and researching the show that those even popped up. So that's why I'm saying it's, I'm not letting this show off the hook. Don't get me wrong. We're getting to it. But it's complicated. It's not as obvious how this show perpetuates certain notions of whiteness and white supremacy as I may have thought at first glance. There are a few black characters, a few recurring black characters, notably a police chief in, a, in an adjacent county and a few guest appearances by black characters. But by and large, black people are not central to the show. So in that obvious way, which a lot of shows that are so-called race neutral, a lot of white shows, it just kind of erases black experience. So that's one way that this show's back on the hook. But there are countless shows, countless television, movie productions that we could talk about that, that ignore the existence of anyone who's not white. But then there's this other part of Dukes of Hazard that the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was a really, really dangerous kind of message to sing. Bo and Lou Duke are constantly breaking the law, frequently ended up in jail, frequently breaking out of jail, and are never once in danger. Even getting guns pulled on them from time to time, I think. Like Roscoe and Enos and Cletus occasionally pull pistols out of their, their side. Now, they don't hold it in any way that makes you think they're going to use it. I think they're often shaken and discombobulated. But Bo and Luke do think about this. They're constantly breaking the law, constantly disobeying law enforcement and getting away with it. In fact, that's the fucking show. Two Southern white boys break the law nonstop often for good reasons or justifiable reasons, and get away. That's the show. And now any, any of my black listeners are like, well, that's fucking crazy. Because if you grow up in a black family, you know that it's life or death that you, you understand the power that the police have. 
And that it's a matter of whether or not you come home at night that you understand that you can't just willy-nilly go breaking the law. But this show constantly, every night, or every episode, sorry, it didn't come on nightly, every week was reinforcing this idea that if you're white, breaking the law is no big deal. And that you don't really stand to lose anything from that. Now, you might be asking yourself, well, how is that racist? I think the problem with that message is that I think it contributes to the notion today that the police aren't violent and dangerous. This notion that many people in white America have, that I would argue the majority of white America has. That no matter what you do, the police aren't going to really hurt you. And that's why I think it's so hard for many white Americans to conceptualize the notion that black people can get murdered by the police simply for being black. Simply for being black and walking down the street, Michael Brown, Elijah McClain. Simply for being black and passing out in your car in the Wendy's drive-thru. Simply for being black and selling CDs without a license or selling loose cigarettes. Simply for being black and being accused of a very minor misdemeanor like George Floyd was. White people really struggle with understanding how that could even happen. And I think it's because the shows like this play a part in contributing to that notion. Because in this show, Bo and Luke Duke commit felony after felony. And not only do they not really ever face any really serious consequences in terms of going to prison or being in the courtroom. It's amazing how infrequently the courtroom showed up in the show for, for a show devoted to lawbreaking. But beyond that, their lives are never in danger. There was never an episode where I was like, damn, Roscoe's going to shoot Bo. And so I think that's another aspect of whiteness and white supremacy are these notions that get drilled into our heads, even if it's implicitly, subconsciously, unconsciously, this notion, these notions we have about what's normal. Another issue with this show, talking about what's normal, speaking of what's normal, is the car. The bright orange race car with the Confederate flag painted on the roof. And the race car is named, it's not even a nickname, because I believe the name is painted on the car too, is the General Lee. And almost never, outside of that pilot episode, where Jesse mentions the Confederacy in his land, almost never, as far as I can recall, and as far as my research can uncover, is the Confederacy or General Lee actually ever discussed. And so at first glance, once again, you're like, so, so big deal. I'm pretty sure when I was watching this show as a six-year-old, I didn't know that it was the Confederate flag. And I didn't know the Confederacy was the, the purest iteration of white supremacy in America's history. And I didn't know how the Confederacy was tied to notions of white supremacy and slavery. And so you might be thinking, dear listener, how is that that bad? Like, even if you recognize the the negativity tied up with General Lee and the Confederacy, you might be thinking, well, if the show never really consciously even nods at those 
those symbols, so what? And I think that's actually the danger. Is that what happens because of shows like or happened, hopefully it's not still happening, but it still may be in some ways actually, thinking about different symbols we have, is that you have this, this form of branding where because you don't talk about General Lee, but he's ubiquitous in the show. And because you don't talk about the Confederate flag, but it's ubiquitous in the show, then it kind of just seeps into your consciousness, especially as a white American, as just something normal. It's something that doesn't even need to be talked about or challenged. And I think that's the danger. And if you don't believe that that shit can happen, then there are billion-dollar advertising agencies who would disagree with you because that's that's what modern-day branding is. That's what marketing is all about, is creating these connections that we have with people, as people with things, with symbols. And I think that's what the Dukes of Hazard does with these symbols of the Confederacy. It makes them seem normal. It makes them seem part of everyday life. And so, if we're not careful, six-year-old me is exposed to those symbols, and I'm not thinking about them being racist, but I'm thinking about them being normal. And therefore, when I get older and someone points out to me how offensive and racist they are, I have this cognitive dissonance. Because I've been told my whole life, through shows like the Dukes of Hazard, that it General Lee and the Confederate flag are just normal parts of everyday existence. And it's hard for me to fathom that they could be racist. And so I think in some ways that's a more insidious, a more dangerous thing that comes out of the Dukes of Hazard. If they had been outwardly racist in that show, outwardly white supremacist in terms of praising General Lee and praising the Confederate flag, then that's the association I would have grown up with. And then when someone comes to me as a 20-year-old, 30-year-old, 40-year-old and says, you know what, that shit's racist, I would have said, yeah, shit, yeah, I knew that. But because the show is just inserting these racist symbols, these white supremacist symbols, but never talking about them, they kind of seep in to your psychology. They seep into the psychology of white America, uncommented on. And they become harmless. And then, when we are educated on how these symbols are very far from harmless, we as white America are, are confused and we're frustrated and we're maybe even angry. Going back to that notion that my mom mentioned too, this idea of like the past is good and pure. Those symbols are, are innocent to us. I love Dukes of Hazard. How dare you call this symbol from this show racist? The Duke boys weren't racist. Which gets me to another part of the show that's really problematic. There isn't really much racism in the show that I can recall at all. Only if you define racism as interpersonal. There's almost none of that. I even saw a quote from the actor who played Cooter. And Cooter was the mechanic. And he's gone on to a career in, in Southern politics. And Cooter is someone I encourage all y'all to read about. But the actor who played Cooter, I think he used the phrase colorblind. And he, he's not really lying. The show was fairly colorblind. 
if there were black characters, the race was never commented on. And otherwise, race was never talked about. Uncle Jesse wasn't making N-word jokes. Boss Hogg, as much as he is a caricature of all that's horrible about the South, wasn't making racist jokes. But once again, that's the problem. And the problem is not that I want these characters to act in a way that's interpersonally racist. But the problem is the show seems to imply that that's all that racism is. Or more to the point, that's all that anti-racism is. And what I mean is, just like my family member's email about my grandfather that focuses on him as a person, it ignores systemic racism. It ignores institutional racism. It ignores legacies of racism and white supremacy. And seems to be implying that if you are a good person, then that's all that it takes to defeat racism. And that's just not true. I hate to tell my white listeners who who haven't figured this out. But even if all of us wake up tomorrow with the purest of hearts ever and never say the N-word and never actually actively discriminate against any single black person, even if all that happens, even if every instance of interpersonal racism disappears tomorrow, that this country will be built and exist as a white supremacist racist country because we will still have countless systems of racist oppression that exist. So don't be fooled by the Dukes of Hazzard or any other number of examples into thinking that anti-racism is the same as just not being racist personally. That's not anti-racism. That's just not being racist personally. If we're truly going to build these systems of justice that we claim we want to build and that we claim we value, then we've got to really work harder at defining what racism is and therefore defining what anti-racism is. Because it's not good enough to just be a good, nice person. We've got to actively dismantle systems of inequity, economic systems of inequity, social systems, residential systems, educational systems, And how we dismantle them might be complicated. I get it. But racism isn't going to die with just a lot of people being nice. It's not going to die with everybody being nice. And I think if I can leave y'all with anything today. I think that's what I want to leave y'all with. Don't get blinded by the personal. Whether we're talking about Dukes of Hazard, Because many people who defend Dukes of Hazard or defend their grandfather or their uncle or even themselves rely on that personal argument. I'm not racist because I've never said the N-word. Because I've never actively discriminated because I've never not hired someone because of their race. And while I don't always believe these personal testimonies, let's just assume they are true. That's not going to be enough. We 
not being personally racist is not going to close the wealth gap in our country. Not being personally racist is not going to reanimate and revive those black bodies with bullet holes in them on the streets of our cities. Not being personally racist is not ending residential segregation. Not being personally racist is not funding our schools in an equitable way. Not being personally racist is nice, but it's not good enough. And my liberal listeners, this is especially for us. Because we love to pat ourselves on the back and basically say how we are Uncle Jesse or Bo and Luke Duke. How no matter how much racism is in the past of our country and how much racism is around us, that we aren't racist and therefore we've done enough. I'm here to tell you, you haven't, and we haven't, and I haven't. We got to think bigger. We've got to think more organized. We've got to think more systemically, more institutionally. Because this system, this edifice of white supremacy has been constructed. It's not going to call. It's not going to fall. It's not going to collapse. Just because we either talk about how bad it is or refuse to acknowledge it. It's only going to collapse if we actively pull the bricks out. So y'all been with me long enough today. I just looked at my timer. It's amazing. Every episode, I swear to God, I kid y'all not. I think I maybe have like 10 minutes of material and then I look up and I'm like, holy shit. I love y'all. Thank you for continuing on this journey, following me down my twists and turns. You can reach me like always at jameslincoln313 at gmail. And let's continue this conversation. Episode 11, I'm going to give you all a teaser. Just like Waylon Jennings talking about, man, the Duke boy's in a heap of trouble. I don't know if they're going to get out of it this time. Here's my teaser. I'm not going to do it in a Waylon Jennings voice. But we are going to middle school and we're doing middle school dress codes first-hand stories. I've got some some doozies. I love y'all. Keep engaged. Peace. I'm out.